If you have access to a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel in the First Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 10. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. 1 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the sons of Israel, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your catastrophes and your distresses. Yet you have said, No, but put a king over us. Now then, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your groups of thousands. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel forward, and the tribe of Benjamin was selected by Lot. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin forward by its families, and the Matrite family was selected by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was selected by Lot. But when they looked for him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself among the baggage. So they ran and took him from there, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and wrote them in the book, and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. Saul also went to his house in Gibeah, and the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain useless men said, How can this one save us? And they despised him and did not bring him a gift. But he kept silent about it. Samuel's time of leadership over Israel ended where it had begun. It was at Mizpah that Samuel had first promised to pray for the Israelite people and ask the Lord to deliver them from the oppression of the Philistines. The text of 1 Samuel has described that occasion in the following way. This is 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then remove the foreign gods and the Ashtarot from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will save you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtarot and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel had been a young man in those days, and Israel had been desperate to be free, both from the corruption of the priesthood and the tyranny of the Philistines. God gave the Israelites victory on that day, and Samuel became Israel's leader. Many years had passed between that early victory and the day on which Samuel gathered the people in 1 Samuel 10, verse 17. Samuel had become an old man, and the Israelites had decided that they did not want things to go back to the way they were. God had promised to watch over Israel if they would be faithful in keeping the stipulations of the covenant of Sinai. But Israel's faithfulness had been erratic. And so over the course of the 396 years between the original signing of the covenant and the inauguration of Israel's first king, the Israelites had endured countless seasons of suffering. As Samuel became old, the Israelites did not want to return to living at the whim of God. They did not want their safety and security to depend on their faithfulness to God's word. They wanted a leader who would fight for them no matter how holy they were. They wanted a leader who was one of them, who would fight for them, and whose fate would be intertwined with theirs. 
This was why they had asked for a king, and on the surface, the request seemed to be perfectly legitimate. After all, the covenant of Sinai anticipated a monarchy, and God had made provisions for kings in the law. It was not the request itself that upset God. It was the purpose of the request that was upsetting. God knew that Israel's request was a rejection both of his leadership and of the covenant they had made. Now, God granted Israel's request for a king, but he did not grant Israel's request to be free from the covenant of Sinai. In fact, in granting Israel's request for a king, God reinforced the authoritative role the covenant of Sinai was still to play in the society and culture of Israel. God began by reminding the people of the founding event of their nation, God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God said through Samuel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. God was reminding the Israelites that they had become a people, not by works, but by the grace of God through faith. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. God did not deliver them from slavery in Egypt because they were exceptionally good people, nor because they were great warriors, nor because they had demonstrated their capacity for righteousness or jurisprudence or sagacity. God delivered them from slavery in Egypt on the strength of a promise. God had promised Abraham that he would deliver Abraham's offspring from slavery. And God had reiterated that promise to Jacob on the day that he moved all of his family and his belongings from Canaan to Egypt. Neither did the Israelites free themselves from slavery to the Egyptians. They did not participate at all. They fought no battles. They engaged in no raids. They didn't even march in protest. They simply lived and worked in the land of Goshen as they always had, while God did battle with the gods and leaders of Egypt. It was after this great deliverance that God offered them a relationship with him, and the covenant of Sinai detailed how that relationship was to work. In Israel's request for a king, they had intended to reject God as their leader and to reject the covenant of Sinai as the mediator of that relationship. God agreed to the former, but God rejected the latter. In previous discussions, we recognized the graciousness by which God chose a leader from the disgraced tribe of Benjamin, and the wisdom by which God chose a man who was both humble and meek. And Saul's meekness was on full display on this day as well. When God selected him publicly to be king, Saul was nowhere to be found. One of my favorite parts of the story is described in verse 21. It says, Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin forward by its families, and the Matrite family was selected by Lot, and Saul the son of Kish was selected by Lot, but when they looked for him, he could not be found. Saul was selected, but no one could find him. But they found him eventually, right? No. No one could find him. The text says that the people had to inquire of the Lord as to Saul's whereabouts, and it was the Lord who told them that Saul was hiding amongst the baggage. It's no wonder that verse 27 has told us, but certainly useless men said, how can this one save us? And they despised him and did not bring him a gift. Even so, Saul's shyness did not discourage everybody. In fact, when they all saw how tall and strong Saul looked, the text tells us that most of the people shouted, long live the king. I want to pause here momentarily 
and consider this moment. Why do you suppose Saul was hiding amongst the baggage? We've already commented on Saul's meekness, so perhaps this simply demonstrates Saul's lack of confidence. But I think it's more than that. In fact, I think if I were Saul, I would have wanted to hide too. If you knew you were chosen to be king, and you were standing in the crowd and heard Samuel say, on behalf of God, the words we find in verse 19, but today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your catastrophes and your distresses, yet you have said no, but put a king over us. If you heard that, what would you have done? I'm sure I would have had second thoughts as well. I wouldn't have wanted to be chosen to lead a group of people who had just rejected God as their defender. So I understand Saul's fear in that moment. I wouldn't have been surprised to read that when they looked for him, all they saw was a cloud of dust on the horizon. And yet, Saul's hiding is a foreboding sign of future problems. In the episode prior to this, God had already given Saul three miraculous signs to ensure him that he was God's choice and that God would be with him. Somehow, those signs had not increased Saul's faith sufficiently. In hiding in the baggage, Saul had failed to place his faith in God's promises to him. Instead, Saul let fear get the best of him. We too must remember that God often asks his people to walk a narrow and pressing road. The walk of discipleship to Jesus is not wide and spacious. As Jesus taught his disciples in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 through 14, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Leadership over the people of Israel would be no easy task. They were a rebellious people, which is why they asked for a king in the first place. And yet God had chosen Saul, and God had demonstrated that reality to Saul by miraculous signs. Perhaps Saul was surprised, or even put off by the burden God had placed on him. Perhaps Saul wished to live his life in contented anonymity in his hometown among the people of his own family. Maybe Saul was not seeking greatness or power or influence. In fact, I think all of this was true of Saul. Even more, I suspect that this is part of why God chose him. But all of this meekness and contentment came with a dark side. Saul's lack of interest in leadership seems to have justified a rebellious spirit within him. It's not only the ambitious or the power-hungry who can go astray. The meek and the humble, too, can find themselves in rebellion against God when they allow their desire for ease and safety to justify a stubborn rebellion to do the hard work God requires for all who would follow him. Saul's election concludes where it began. Samuel began with the story of Israel's founding in the foothills of Mount Sinai after God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And in verse 25, that's also where Saul's election is completed. Samuel read to the people from the covenant of Sinai. Samuel read the ordinances with respect to the king. These ordinances are found in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 through 20 in our Bibles. The word Samuel read and wrote down went something like this. When you enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you take possession of it and live in it, and you say, I will appoint a king over me like all the nations who are around me, 
You shall in fact appoint a king over you, whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall appoint as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves, anyone who is not your countryman. In any case, he is not to acquire many horses for himself, nor shall he make the people return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, so that his heart does not turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, so that he will learn to fear the Lord his God, by carefully following all the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart will not be haughty toward his countrymen, and that he will not turn away from the commandment to the right or the left so that he and his sons may live long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. I wonder if Saul obeyed this command. The text does not say that in response Saul went to Kiriath-Jerim, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in those days. The text does not say that in response Saul went to seek out a priest to oversee his copying of the covenant of Sinai. All we're told is that Saul went home to Gibeah and that some warriors accompanied him. And perhaps most interesting to me is that we're not told what happened next to Samuel either. In the next chapter, Samuel will accompany Saul in battle, but in this context, Samuel's behavior is left unstated. I wonder if he stayed there in the presence of the Lord after the rest had left. I'm surprised that the text does not suggest that Samuel accompanied Saul to ensure that he copied the covenant of Sinai as the Lord required. I suppose that if we were meant to know, we would have been told. If Israel had hoped that in choosing a king they would be rid of God and the strictness of the covenant of Sinai, Samuel has revealed that no such request had been granted by God. Even with a king to fight for them, Israel is still bound to the covenant of Sinai, and the king is to be submitted to its stipulations and ordinances. Israel had tried to reject God, But God had not rejected Israel. In the ceremony surrounding the selection of Saul, God had reaffirmed his commitment to Israel and the permanence of the agreement that he had made with them at Sinai. What does this tell us about God? No matter how wicked and rebellious we may be, God is slow to give up on our reclamation and on our righteousness. Despite nearly 400 years of rebelliousness, God, through Samuel, pointed his people back to the covenant of Sinai. Despite nearly 400 years of sinful decisions, God demonstrated his mercy and grace in the selection of Saul. Despite nearly 400 years of stiff necks and complaining chatter, God chose a meek and humble king to rule over them. God extended Israel another opportunity to be faithful to the promises they had made at Sinai. He had Samuel read the law to them again, and he commissioned their first king to become an expert in the covenant of Sinai. God offered Israel another opportunity to be holier today than they had been yesterday. This is the grace and faithfulness of our God, and nowhere has it been demonstrated more fully than in the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus. Paul has described the example Jesus set for us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through 8. He wrote, Have these, this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Sometimes it can seem to us that the, that God is presented very differently in the First Testament than he is in the New. However, in the election of Saul, we see the same attitude displayed that God demonstrated in Jesus. The people of Israel had rejected God's leadership and had tried to distance themselves from the covenant they had made with him at Mount Sinai. How did God respond? God responded by giving them the king for whom they had asked and for reiterating again his continued commitment to be with them through the covenant and through the king he had chosen. As would later be true of Jesus, God in this instance also emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. God committed to continue to aid a people who had rejected him as Lord. When God's judgment finally comes, and some humans are finally condemned, It's not due to the distemper or the woundedness or the faithlessness of God. Throughout the history preserved for us in the scriptures, God has remained faithful to his promises. May all who seek to please him receive his invitation to repent and begin again to walk in relationship with him. Amen.